never forget years ago when Rick and I would take monthly trips to the Edmonton Institution and conduct services. And uh, the pattern was the chapel would be filled at the beginning when Rick would get his guitar out and sing. And the inmates loved to sing. And uh, something ironic happened. When I got up to preach, half of them would leave. One month when Rick and I are driving in, I say, we're going to do something different this night tonight, Rick. <laughs> and I got up and preached first, and everyone looked at me as if I lost my mind. What's going on here? <laughs> Suddenly confused. There was no escape. Good times, eh, brother? This morning I'm going to talk about the new covenant. I'll explain in a minute why I've chosen to talk about the New Covenant and talk about what it is. And I'll spend a bit of time on does the New Covenant apply to Christians? I'll explain that in a moment. But then I want to end up with some encouragement. Now, I'm going to use slides because I, which I haven't used for a long time and I hope things work out well. The point is that I'm going to be running around between some verses and to save you flipping or uh, sliding pages uh, I'll give you the verses uh, in front on the slides but that's my point of using this to keep our time as short as possible cover the material and let but let the scripture speak for itself and so that's my intention. So would you please join me in prayer and pray that the Lord would help us, um, help me and help us. Lord, my heart is humbled this morning as we tread upon ground that has been sprinkled by the very blood of Jesus Christ. As Peter said, it is precious. I pray, Father, that there's nothing I would say or teach this morning that would rob you of your glory and the preciousness of your Son's blood. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that we as a congregation would have ears to hear and hearts to believe. What indeed the author of Hebrews said is better promises. Oh, that we would grasp better promises. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I chose to give you a working definition of the New Covenant. A working definition is where a teacher kind of robs some of all the citations and everything. And yet gives you a definition that you can 
hang on to and think about. You won't forget when you leave. The new covenant is obviously a Trinitarian covenant. And you'll read my words, the Father's unconditional promises. Every word here, by the way, I've chosen so that it's important. The Father's unconditional promises that accompany salvation. The word accompany is a biblical reference. The Father's unconditional promises that accompany salvation that were purchased by Jesus Christ and are applied by the Holy Spirit to be received by faith alone in Christ alone. That's what I believe is a working, is a functional definition that you can take. Just think of the Trinity. Father promises, Son purchases, Holy Spirit applies. And your contribution and my contribution is believing the promise. That's it. Believing the promise. That's all we contribute to this. This is the new covenant. Now the question that was on my mind, oops, something went wrong here. Okay. I I knew I wasn't familiar with this yet. So bear with me. Love me in spite of it. This is, this is the question I had in my mind, and it occurred to my mind several weeks ago as I was thinking about the church and thinking about what we do. And I imagined an individual coming to me. So this is a picture that I want you to have in your head. You as an individual or somebody comes to me and says, Jim... I don't think those promises that you quote each Communion Sunday when you quote Jeremiah 31 or you quote Jeremiah 32 or you quote Ezekiel 36, I don't think, I think you're taking that out of context, Jim. That does not apply to the church. And it's a good question. It's not a bad question. Because when you look at those promises... You read, for example, in Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And if you're the one questioning me, you would say, We're not Israel. We're not Judah. So how can you just freely tell us that God promises to place his law in our heart and mind. How can you just say this freely, that God will remember our sins no more? How can you just say that God will take out a stony heart and give you a heart of flesh? How can you say that God will put his fear in you so you'll never turn away? How can you say these kind of things, that God will always continually do good to you? How can you say that when it's written to a different group of people. And, and that was what's on my mind. And I consider that a, a failing on my part that I want to make right today. So that you clarify 
that when we stand up and quote the new covenant at the Lord's table applied to you believers, that in fact we're using the Bible as it, as it is intended to be used. So that's my task. That's my task this morning. What are the grounds that I have to be so audacious and use promises that were once given to Judah and to Israel and to the house of David and depending on which citation you're using. What right do I have to do that? So that's the question that's on my mind. Now I'm going to give you six reasons. There are more. But there's six reasons why. First of all, it maintains how the church consistently applies the Old Testament. Consistently applies the Old Testament. The Old Testament has been historically and consistently applied by the church, taking the promises God made to Israel, particularly in the restoration of Israel, and the church has consistently, historically applied it to themselves. For instance, you can imagine the fun that I'll have when someone says to me, Jim, uh, how can you apply this promise to Israel uh, when it's clearly stated that way? And I'll turn to them and I'll say, do you like Jeremiah 29, 11? You like that promise? I see it in some of your walls when I visit your homes. So please forgive me if you get to use a promise in Jeremiah 29 and I don't get to use one in 31. Or oftentimes we will comfort somebody from Isaiah 43 too. That's a promise given to Israel when they go through their captivity. You, you see, folks, people, the church, now this isn't totally compelling. I'm only starting here. But the church has historically used the promises of God to Israel as applied to the church. I've heard some of you, I've heard some of you stand up here and say, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, I will seek and seek my face. I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. That promise was given to Israel, not you, brother and sister. How do you get to use it so? You, you, how do you get to use it so freely? The answer is the church has consistently taken the promises of the Old Testament in many cases and applied them to ourselves. And there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is not my point number two. The covenant promises given to Israel, including its restoration, are ultimately realized in Christ. That's why the church gets to use these promises, because these promises are ultimately found in Christ. Many of you are familiar with Paul's letter to the Galatians. Can I just... Uh, point out something. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, 
He does not teach that believing Jews will receive Christian promises. You need to track with me. I'm sorry to make you think. He does not teach that believing Jews receive Christian promises. What does he teach? Just the opposite. He teaches that believing Christians receive Jewish promises in Christ Jesus. That's what he teaches. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we read that all the promises of God find their yes in him, meaning Christ. All the promises of God are found in Christ. That's why the early churches and the church through the century has taken the freedom to use these promises because they see them first and foremost resolved in Christ. And then us being in Christ become inheritors of these promises. All the promises. But you know, one of the most compelling verses that every Christian ought to realize is found by Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. Follow along as I read. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, he's talking about most of us, if not all of us, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcisions. This is how Jews referred to Gentiles as uncircumcised, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, speaking to the Gentiles, speaking to you and me, remember that you were, past tense, at that time separated from Christ. What happens to a person who's separated from Christ? Well, they're also alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They're also strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's so clear. To exercise faith in Christ is to be brought into the covenant promises that were once given to Israel. In fact, one of the, and this is my last point on this point, one of the most compelling, compelling accounts took place in the first century and is recorded for us in Acts 15. You'll recall that the apostles going out from Jerusalem talking about Christ and the gospel soon entered into the scenario that Gentile people were, being, were believing in the gospel and Gentile people were being saved. What a shock to many of the Jews. And so they convened a council recorded in the 15th chapter of Acts to, 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 to answer the question, is it possible that a Gentile can be saved? <laughs> now, you and I think that's bizarre today. That was a real concern. And so they discussed it and they debated it. And an interesting event is, a court, uh, is recorded in the minutes of the meeting. Notice what it says. After they finished speaking, James, James, who was the, appeared to be the council chair, got up and said, Brothers, listen to me. 
Simeon, speaking of Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. So let me not go too fast. I want to insult your intelligence, but James is getting up, and he's affirming that Gentiles can be saved. And he reaches all the way back to the Old Testament prophets. You see that? In fact, you'll see that he reaches all the way back to Amos chapter 9, which is speaking of the restoration of Israel, the rebuilding of David's tent. And this is what he says. With the words of the, prof- of, of the prophets agree, just as it's written. After this, quoting Amos 9, after this I will return, I will rebuild the tent of David, that has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins, I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known of old. Paraphrase, when the Gentiles were coming to Christ, the early church leaders saw that as a direct fulfillment of the restoration promises of the Old Covenant. That's significant. The rebuilding of Israel started when the Gentiles started to come to Christ. Now that's going to raise all kinds of other concerns that you will have to study on your own. I really don't have hours this morning. But start with Romans 9, where Paul identifies the fact there are two types of Israel. And you've got to know which Israel you're talking about. But the restoration of Israel, the remnant people, occurred according to James, inspired by the Holy Spirit. The rebuilding of Israel started when the Gentiles were brought to faith in Christ. That's a deep one for you to think on. Thirdly, is it biblical to apply new covenant to Christians? Well, beloved, every time we speak of and record, um, uh, speak of the record of Christ's Passover with his disciples, when Jesus offered up his body on a cross, he poured out his blood so that we might be forgiven our sins. Every time we speak of that, in fact, we are revisiting the inauguration, the establishment of the new covenant for us. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. As a young Christian, I either was shaped to think differently or just didn't see it, just was ignorant of it. But it took years for me to come to the place to realize 
that this cup is in fact emblematic, symbolic of the new covenant. And the aspect of blood is just to remind us what it cost Jesus that we might have these promises. Does that make sense? The blood is is the purchase price that all the promises that we rehearse at the Lord's table have been bought and uh, paid for by the blood of Christ. Number four, another reason, the fourth reason I have absolute liberty to invite you to rejoice in these promises is that Paul explicitly says that we are recipients and ministers of the new covenant. He says very clearly, speaking to the Corinthians, a Gentile group of people, we are ministers of the new covenant. And he reminds the Corinthians, as we ought to be reminded, perhaps every Lord's table, that the old covenant continually pounded our heads with, you better do this or you will die. And the better promises that Jesus bought and paid for is believe this and you will live. And the difference is day and night, life and death. Number four. Number five. The most compelling truth for me, I've said that three times, so there's three most compelling truths in my sermon. Figure that out, you English majors. The most compelling truth is the preacher of the book of Hebrews. Now, I'm not going to go over this fast. Pastor Josh, you can relax. Pastor Josh is going to dig us into this at some point. But is it not blatantly obvious that when in, you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 8 and you read about the new covenant, the better promises, and the author addressing a Christian audience reaches all the way back to Jeremiah 31 to prove his point, isn't it obvious that the new covenant is for Christians? Well, it is to me. And I hope that as we unpack that, as Pastor Josh unpacks that, you will see that with clarity that these promises that are originally titled to the house of Judah are for you and you today and for you to believe today and rejoice in today. In fact, just a technical note in Hebrews 8, 6. Oh, I'm not there yet. A technical note in Hebrews 8, 6. uh, When the author talks about this new covenant, he speaks of it in the Greek tense, in the present tense. Now, all of you understand the present tense. It's it's, it's now. But when he uses the term enactment, he uses it in the perfect tense. And just to explain the perfect tense, the perfect tense is is, is, is a verb that happened in the past but is still continuing today. So when the author is saying to the Christians through the his sermon, his admonition, his exhortation of Hebrews, he's saying to them, this new covenant 
which was endorsed in the past and continues today, offers better promises. So believe the better promises. That's what the writer is saying. Believe the better promises. So that's number five. Oh, there's my slide. Number six. We're doing okay, aren't we? And I've still got some water. One of the key aspects to applying, I'm going to take a little bit longer here. One of the key aspects to applying the new covenant to believers is God's promise to change their hearts. God's promise to change their hearts. There's a principle that runs through the Bible that you can't obey God, you can't please God, you can't serve God, you can have no spiritual uh, a capital without a changed heart. Way back in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses stood this side of the Jordan and he was telling the second generation of Jews all the commands of God before the crossing the Jordan. And having told them the commands, he makes this astounding statement. Deuteronomy 29.4 But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Think of that. Think of yourself as an elite military leader or or political uh, leader, and you're now moving your nation towards obedience to God and having given all the commands. Oh, just forgot to mention one point. You can't obey any of these without a changed heart. That's what he said. Because in the very next chapter, when he spoke of the tremendous future, though, that Israel has... And that future time, he says, and the Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, that you might live. There is a trajectory in the Bible from absolutely from Exodus to Revelation that teaches that human effort the flesh gives birth to flesh. Only the spirit gives birth to spirit. That trajectory is through the entire scriptures. So Israel is always looking for this time when God will intersect lives and give them a new heart. This is called circumcised heart, changed heart. The New Testament is called being born again, being a new creation, all speaking to the same things. These are required before anything of any spiritual value can take place. And so by the time we get to Ezekiel, the time uh, just before the return of Israel to, the, to their land, Ezekiel says, from God I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now, the last Sunday we talked about Nicodemus. 
Nicodemus came to Jesus, and Jesus said these interesting words to him. Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see and you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And he's, Jesus is talking about this topic of the new birth. And Nicodemus doesn't get it. And in verse 10 of chapter 3, Jesus says these astounding words to Nicodemus. Are you, now notice the article, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? You know what I think Jesus was saying to him? Have you not read Deuteronomy 30? <laughs> Have you not read Ezekiel 36? Have you not read Jeremiah 31 and Jeremiah 32? Have you not read the scriptures that every time it mentions, and I will be your God and you will be my people? Nicodemus, you are the teacher of Israel. You are the academic head of all Israel's religious studies, and you don't know this? This isn't new to the New Testament. The promise of God to come and invade the lives of people and give them a new heart, put the Spirit in them, and apply to them promises that are beyond words has, been, has started all the way through from Exodus through to Revelation. And you, Nicodemus, you didn't get this? So on Sundays, or what I'll do on this morning, is I'll stand up here and I'll take the cup and I'll remind you what Jesus said. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink ye all of it. Remember me. What are you to remember? Are you not to remember that God promises to circumcise the heart of those who have put their faith in him such that he removes that stone-cold heart and give you a heart of flesh? Does that not mean that the promise that he made to remember your sins no more is true? Does that promise not contain the promise that he will place his law in your heart. The governing principle of your life will be the delight to do God's work. Does that promise not contain the truth that you will enjoy a relationship with him, one that you belong to him and he belongs to you? So that the individual that came to see me Theoretically, these are the six reasons I would give. Six biblical reasons why it is absolutely not only right, but necessary for Christians to embrace the new covenant. For example, what encouragement can we get this morning from this? As I already said, the new covenant comes with a promise of a personal 
relationship with God. If you like to study the Bible and you have a good concordance or perhaps faster, a good library system, a digital library system, just type in, in the old, for the Old Testament, I will be their God. Type that phrase in. And it's astounding how that phrase shows up through the whole Bible. All of that refers to the New Covenant promise. I will be their God, and they will be my people. The psalmist in Psalm 100 says, Know the Lord, he is, our, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people. The sheep of his pasture. You, as a Christian who have faith in Christ, have an intimate relationship with God that is unknown in any other world system. I will be your God. You will be my people. As I pass through that, notice the unconditional element. Secondly, with the new covenant comes the promise of internal motivation for holiness. I need to unpack that, I realize. The new covenant says, I will put my laws in your mind and I'll write them on your heart. What does that mean? Well, I believe Paul explains what it means. In Romans chapter 7, Paul takes the reader through this interesting little battle. He reminds the Christian that the spirit is at war with the flesh. And Paul writes things like, the things I want to do, I don't do. Anybody relate to that? And he writes, the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. You can relate to that. And then Paul asks the question, why do we have this battle? Why is there a battle? And he answers it in verse 21 and 22. Because in the true Christian, the genuine believer, there has been placed a delight to do the law of God. If that wasn't there, you would have no battle. <laughs> you really wouldn't. Life would be a breeze. You could sin without guilt. You could commit trespasses without any fear of problem. But because when Jesus Christ came into your life and made you a new creation, he placed within you this principle of the law that gives you an inner motivation to love God's law and do God's law. You've heard me say before, and I don't mean to be mean, but if you're listening to me this morning and you have no motivation to, to obey God and do his law, brother or sister, I question whether you've been born again. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. When Paul admonished the Philippian church, Philippians 2, 12 to 13, now I'm really stepping on another preacher's notes. 
Paul said to the church, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why should I persevere? Why should I push towards this? Because God is working in you to will and to do his good pleasure. Where does that come from? It comes from the new heart. It comes from the new spirit. It comes from a delight that God sovereignly and by grace puts into the heart of, the new, of a Christian. In the New Covenant, we're reminded that, that we have this inner desire to obey God and do His will. And today we struggle, I might add. There's a, there's a struggle between the, 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 the new heart and the flesh, but someday when this New Covenant finds its complete fulfillment in the new heaven and the new earth, that will be gone. No more struggle. Notice the words, and I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I'll put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk my statutes. And be careful. That means that you will be very conscious of the fact that you want to obey the rules. That's one of the promises that we celebrate. Paid for by the blood of Christ. The first encouragement this morning, God will be your God and you will be my people. The second encouragement this morning, the second encouragement this morning is that God will sovereignly place a desire in your heart to obey him and pursue holiness. And the third and final encouragement this morning is that with the new covenant, the promise that comes with the new covenant is a promise of persevering grace for you. That means that when you are, let me put this plain English, when you are born again, you already have within you a desire to go through to the end. You already have that in by God's grace. Jeremiah, in his, his repeat of the, the new covenant, says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Now, Christian, that's either there or it's not there. And the invitation this morning is to 
Rejoice in putting your faith and belief in the promises of God. They're better promises. In Hebrews chapter 6, again, briefly, I won't tread on that ground. The writer to the Hebrews is writing to Christians who are contemplating the notion of going back into Judaism. And in Hebrews 6, he says to them, he theorizes with them, how can you who have experienced the goodness of God, the grace of God, how can you reject what is the real thing, Jesus, and go back into a system of types and shadows, things that only pointed to him? That's his argument. How can you leave his real and substantive and go back into what is a sign pointing to him? He said, if you do that, there's no coming back. And that's where most people stop. But in the very next verse, he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, the people he's writing to, beloved Christians, we feel sure of better things. Here's this word better that keeps coming up in Hebrews. Things that belong to salvation. Or another translation, which I like, says things that accompany salvation. There are things that belong to salvation. They're given freely by grace. One of the things is on and on. As I've alluded to, the new covenant contains promises of complete forgiveness promises of God's eternal goodness. Never, he will never stop turn, doing you good. Promises to live in a community. Promises to live in a community whereby no one needs to be told you need to know God. There's a day coming when there will be a community of new covenant believers on this New Earth, where everyone will know God. Can you imagine that community? Can you imagine a community where every single living human being knows God intimately? There's going to be, within the New Covenant, there's a promise of a restored earth. Within the New Covenant, there's a, there are promises of no more pain, no more sin, no more sadness. And as this new covenant is unfolding day by day, we are distinctly blessed people that what God has started in our hearts will someday be realized everywhere. You ask me, Pastor Jim, why would you exercise such passion when you speak of the new covenant. I will return a question to you. Why would it not that when the minister of the Lord's table takes the cup and reminds you this cup is the new covenant in my blood, 
that you don't go insane with joy. The new covenant, though, can only be celebrated by people in Christ. There is no celebration if you're not in Christ. There's no celebration if you haven't turned to Christ and put your faith in Him. If you're here this morning or if you're listening online, and you don't know what it means to have forgiveness of sins. You don't know what it means to know God. You don't know what it means to have an inner motivation in your spirit that loves him, wants to serve him, wants to obey him. If you don't know what it means to have this life-changing reality, this morning I want to remind you that Jesus Christ came to this earth particularly that he would live the life that you and I ought to have lived, a life of perfection. And that Jesus Christ came to this world to die a death that every single person here this morning and listening ought to have died an eternal death for the sins you and I have committed. And he stood in the place of all who believe. He came to reconcile you to God. He came to give you better promises. Rather than keep working and you'll still die, or Jesus did it all, just believe and live. So I invite you, if you're not a Christian, to put your faith in Christ today, who according to the author of Hebrews is a better Savior with better promises, and it gives you a better hope. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I think of Peter's words in his letters that we have received very many precious promises. And we are passive recipients of this promise, these promises. All come to us through the love of God through the shed blood of Christ and by the work of the Holy Spirit. And we are humbled that you would be so kind to us, that you would spoil us with such riches, that you would lavish us with such grace. And now, Heavenly Father, as we continue to worship and as we gather around your table, I pray that there would be an overflow, an infilling and an overflow 
of gratitude and joy for these many precious promises. And that it would be life-transforming for us. Such that as we leave this world, leave this building and go into this world, men and women and boys and girls will recognize the hope that is within us. And would you do that, Father, for the joy of all of us this morning, but so that you get all the glory and you get all the praise and you get all the accolades and that you arise as famous and we become more humble. In Christ's name we pray.